This program is made possible by the support of the members of the show. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Progressive, The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report. Please listen closely at the end of the show as I have a couple of big announcements. Do you remember a little more than a year ago, we gave uh, Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Goldman Sachs somewhere between 10 and $25 uh, billion a piece to stave off a catastrophic implosion of their uh, bonus system. I mean, um, <laughs> the economy, which apparently depends on them. Well, good news, although the economy remains volatile, as evidenced by last week's 20-minute, thousand-point, still hauntingly unexplained stock market drop. One sector of the economy appears to have stabilized. Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan have just pitched a Wall Street equivalent of a perfect game. The big banks made money every single day last quarter. Zero days of losses. No days in the red, every day in the black. <laughs> yeah, perfect game. Pitched by four separate teams on 61 consecutive days. <laughs> it's as though the rules are set up to make it illegal for the opposing team to use bats. February 16th, earnings and manufacturing data comes in better than expected. The stock market went up 170 points. It's no surprise the banks would make money on that day. But on February 4th, unemployment news sends the market down 268 points. The banks still made money. March 2nd, the market really didn't do anything. It was down two. The banks made money. January 25th, KISS rang the opening bell. You would think that would give investors pause. But no, they made money. On March 12th, dragons attacked Wall Street. The banks still made money. Turns out the banks had cornered the market on fire. What is going on? And by the way, it wasn't like every day they squeaked into the black. Bank of America making a good deal of money. Try about $3.2 billion worth of money in the first quarter. Goldman Sachs again averaged about, oh, $25 million a day. Citigroup at $4.4 billion. JP Morgan made at least $118 million a day. Uh, and that comes down to about $5 million an hour. Oh, really? I think we have video of how in the black they are. Can we take a look? They couldn't lose. We could lose. We did lose. How is that? It's a real unusual credit market environment for traders right now. Yes, it is somewhat unusual. If by unusual you mean the Federal Reserve is lending to the banks at 0%. Yeah, that is kind of unusual. And, and what are the banks doing with the free money? Treasuries are trading at, uh, at, at huge volumes with the U.S. government seeking so much money to finance TARP. I see. So uh, what's happening is they're taking the bailout money we gave them and lending it back to the government <laughs> to pay for the bailout. <laughs> and then charging the government interest. Our government is the worst loan shark in history. <laughs> hey, you got my money? No? Well, here, take more of my money. <laughs> no, you'll take it. Don't make me break my thumbs. <laughs> you know what? I actually, I give up. You win. The banks win. We're waving the white flag. Just take the money. I don't even care at this point. You know what? Take the flag. I don't care. Just go. Make the money. Take the money. The rest of us are going to start a nut-based economy. <laughs> and you know what? We're just going to have to pray. Nobody on Wall Street is a squirrel.
Future historians will look back on the financial crisis of the last couple years and wonder why Congress didn't act sooner or more aggressively to prevent such a crisis from recurring. Last week, by an astonishingly wide margin, the Senate voted down a bill sponsored by Sherrod Brown and Ted Kaufman that would have limited the size of financial institutions. No more too big to fail, they proposed. Let's chop them down to size before they bring the economy down with them once more. Their bill would have forced the six largest banks in the country to sell off part of their businesses. Well, the vote on the Restoring American Financial Stability Act of 2010 was 61 against, 33 in favor. And get this, a whopping 27 Democratic senators sided with the big banks on this crucial vote. Check out some of these names. Evan Bayh, Kent Conrad, Chris Dodd, Dianne Feinstein, John Kerry, Herb Cole, Chuck Schumer, John Tester. Tester ran as a populist. Schumer and Dodd have pretended to be leaders on financial reform. And John Kerry? It really makes you wonder. As Dick Durbin, who voted in favor of this legislation, put it a while back, the banks own this place. Yeah, they own it, and they subdivide it. I'm not aware of too many things. I know what I know if you know what I mean. This episode is being sponsored by Audible. They're the world's largest resource for downloadable audio content like books, periodicals, premium podcasts, and more. For a limited time until June 30th, Audible is offering listeners of this show a free audiobook download of your choice. It's a pretty good deal. Simply visit audiblepodcast.com slash best. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best. I'm not aware of too many things. I know what I know if you know what I mean. We've all got to make some cash fast, folks, because Obama is determined to destroy Wall Street with his oppressive financial regulations, all in the name of protecting the consumer from risky investments. Risky investments are like risky sex. It's more exciting. <laughs> if you make the banks wear a condom, they won't be able to feel it when they're f***ing us over. <laughs> well, thankfully... <laughs> thankfully, folks... Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell got all 41 Republican senators to sign a letter opposing the bill. Because this bill is broken, folks. Just listen to Massachusetts Senator and human truck hybrid Scott Brown. <laughs> Passionately explain to reporter exactly what Brown would fix in this bill. Well, what areas do you think should be fixed? I mean, you know, tell me. <laughs> Truly a man of his convictions once you tell him what they are. <laughs> but just when it looked like the Republicans had stopped this bill dead, Obama's Security and Exchange Commission dropped this bombshell. The story everybody is talking about tonight is, of course, Goldman Sachs, the original too-big-to-fail firm. The mega firm was charged with fraud by the SEC. Why are government employees filing a civil suit against Goldman Sachs? That's just going to be embarrassing in a few years when they all go back to work at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Folks, 
The liberal media always, always gets a charge out of attacking Goldman Sachs. In Rolling Stone, Matt Taibbi called Goldman a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity. Wrong, Matt. Goldman is not a vampire. It also feeds during the day. And what, what exactly did the feds accuse Goldman of doing here? Ali Velshi, CNN's business reporter from our raceless, hairless future, explains. Wall Street investment firm Goldman Sachs is accused of selling mortgage-backed securities that were essentially set up to lose money. Allegedly, the deals were put together in part by a hedge fund tycoon who was betting against them. What's the problem? There's nothing illegal about selling customers a product designed to fail. The Chicago Cubs do it every year. Are they going to jail? No, I do not think that they are. Anyway, here's how it allegedly worked. Allegedly. An independent hedge fund manager named John Paulson created an investment made up of mortgage bonds he believed would fail. Goldman agreed to sell this to investors like German banks and pension funds without telling them it was crap. <laughs> Meanwhile, Goldman bought insurance betting against the bonds and when they failed, like they knew it would, Goldman and Paulson cashed in and then celebrated by stepping on a baby's throat. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. They also took out insurance on the baby. Okay, and even... Cover that up there, right there, all right. And even, even if that's what they did, what's the big deal? It was just one guy. It wouldn't be too difficult to dig up other emails from other banks that were doing maybe something similar. They were not uniquely the only ones that were creating these types of securities or betting that they would decline. A lot of companies on Wall Street and a lot of hedge funds were involved in this business. Even better, it was one guy and it was everybody. How many explanations do they need? Here to tell me how many explanations they need is New York Times financial columnist Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, sir. You are the author of the blockbuster Too Big to Fail. All right? So you know these cats. You know how this works. Which is it? Was it just one guy or was it everybody doing it? Well, I think we don't know the answer, but the... Okay. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Andrew Ross Sorkin, everybody. We don't know the answer of how many people were involved, but the larger question is how widespread this was on the street. And that's really what people are worried about. No, but Whether... no, they made a lot of money, right? Goldman Sachs made a lot of money, yes. How much? But like $3.7 this... billion on this one deal, right? No, 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 no. John Paulson made that kind of money, but actually Goldman Sachs ended up losing money. That's actually their defense, oddly enough. They ended up losing $90 million to put this thing together. So they're the victim here. That's what they're saying. Doesn't everybody owe them an apology? That, that's, what, that's what Lloyd Blankfein would tell you. So uh, were other people doing this? Do we know yet? Because that's what I, I'm hearing on my friends on the shows. I think, I think we don't know how extensive it was, but clearly people were putting these types of things together. They were building cars that they thought or hoped that the brakes wouldn't work, and then they were buying funeral homes hoping that they'd pay off later. So they work for Toyota. <laughs> Thank you.
Now you, 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 you called this, uh, it's like uh, the metaphor you used was buying fire insurance on a neighbor's house. Yes. And then committing arson. There's an element to that as well, yes. Yes, because I actually don't own your house. My only goal in life, now that I own insurance on your house, is to burn it down. So that's what was actually going on along Wall Street. And there were so many of these types of products. And so there's a real question about whether you need to regulate these types of products. And that's why this SEC case is so important. Let's talk about the timing of this. It seems right. pretty suspicious to me. Well, that's... Okay, that, okay, Obama puts together this regulation because the global economy uh, nearly imploded. Okay? Well... Now, Goldman gets accused of doing something that helped implode the right. global economy. Coincidence? I will tell you, the news that we're hearing today, which is really interesting, is that the SEC, which has five people, voted along party lines to pursue the case. So there were two Republicans who voted against, two Democrats, one independent. By the way, the independent was, of course, got their job from Obama. Mm -hmm voted to pursue the case. So, so there it's a, is a, it's, it's a there is, there is a, witch, it's there a political witch hunt. There are political, it's a political witch hunt. There are political overtones. It's a political witch hunt. I don't know that. You don't know that. I don't know that. Right now the what I'm hearing is that the banking system is is so delicate right now. Right. We're, we're at a very very right. crucial time because um, uh, banks are only making billions of dollars in profits right now. It's a real problem. And real problem. Sh should this kind of stuff be in the news because there are a lot of unemployed people right now who have a lot of time to read about it. Well, this, is a, this is a very important story and it's a very important case. And the reason it's so important is because there's a question as to whether Wall Street is the casino. And interestingly, the defense that Goldman... What's wrong with the casino? You know, because we, America gets destroyed, but maybe they comp our meal. Ex except that we comp their meal. With, but the taxpayers comp the meal of Wall Street, and that's what I think has people so outraged, because we've basically supported the casino operator who's making these bets on both sides and potentially rigging the system, and that's, that's what people are, are worried about. If people don't want to take risks, they shouldn't invest. That is true. I accept your apology. <laughs> So what was this article? It was about hedge funds who had gotten together uh, in a meeting that was supposed to be a little bit secret. Well, you know, look, they're running private uh, money. So, of course, they're not going to do that in, in public. And there's, I don't think there's anything particularly nefarious about that. But the Wall Street Journal found out about it, and they wrote about it. And what they were going to do is uh, they were going to short um, Greece, for example. And we see how that turned out. That turned out to be a really smart bet. And they made a ton of money from it. In fact, at the time, now this was, uh, there was already blood in the water, and Greece already had troubles, right? Uh, but 
uh, they, had, they had not gotten into as much trouble as they are in now. Uh, Hans Hofschmidt, a former senior Solomon Brothers executive. I mean, they're like out of comic books. But anyway, he said, this is an opportunity to make a lot of money. And he was right. And so now, why do I think that Tom misinterpreted this article a little bit? He, he said, look, these are the vultures, and, and we've got to stop these guys, et cetera, et cetera. Now, they are the vultures. Uh, and I don't think they should be allowed to make their derivatives bets. Uh, and, and it has, like the vultures, they carry disease, and <laughs> it's got issues, et cetera. But I don't think they're the bad guys. I don't think they're the central problem. They're actually the smartest guys who see the fu underlying fundamental problems. They go, look, we get a sense that Greek can't, Greece can't pay back the money that they owe. So we're going to make the bet on the opposite side of that. That's what being short means. Being long means I'm making that bet. I think Greek, uh, Greece can pay its loans back, for example. right? Being short means I don't think they can. I'm going to bet against them. Right? So they went short, and they were right, and they made a lot of money. Now, the prob like it's, it's, it's as if there was a, a gun battle. And, or it wasn't even a battle. A guy takes out a gun, boom, shoots somebody dead. And then the vultures come. Well, you're concerned about the vultures, but what I'm more concerned about is the guy who took out the gun and shot the, the guy dead. right? So. As these guys were talking, the part of the article that I thought was so interesting, and why I'm bringing it to your attention now is, they said, oh, we got to short Greece, then we got to short Europe, because we think the euro is way overvalued, and, and that was partly because of Greece's problems, and mainly they're going after the euro, okay? And again, they were right on that. Uh, then after they're done with that, and it's not all of them necessarily, and I want to be fair here, but... Uh, I'll give you an exact quote. Donald Morgan, head of the hedge fund Brigade Capital, told the group that he believed Greek debt is an early domino to fall in a contagion that will eventually hit U.S. companies, U.S. municipalities, and United States Treasury securities. Do you understand what that means? That's monumentally important. That means the smartest guys in the business, these guys who made billions doing this, and we're right about Greece, we're right about the Euro. They think we're next. The vultures are circling around us. The United States Treasury Securities, they think, if you think Treasury Securities should be shorted, well, then like I said, everything is going to cave in on itself. That means you think we're going to have a global economic collapse like we've never seen before. They're starting to short us. You understand? Now, we're worried about the vultures, and we should be, because they shouldn't be allowed to make those side bets. And those side bets are dangerous. Okay, But they're not the ultimate bad guys here. They're the ones who saw the shooting. And that's they're coming to make money off the shooting. right? We've got to be worried about the shooter. And in this case, the shooter are the guys who are, are, have driven the economy into the ground in the first place. And those are, in my if not just my opinion, but based on the evidence that we have are our banks. Hedge funds and banks are different. The institutional banks, they make derivatives bets. If they lose, we pay the bill. If a hedge fund loses, most of the time, a great majority of the time, they lose. Sad day for them. That's the kind of capitalism I can live with. Okay? And if they win, they win. Now, unfortunately, when they win, a lot of that gets transferred over to our uh, bill anyway. But they're looking at how unsustainable our economy has become because of our financial markets. And they think, time to go short. We'll make a lot of money when America goes under. Look, I, I can't, I, I don't know if I can 
convey with enough strength the idea of of how important these guys thinking they should short treasury securities is. It's one thing to short a, a U.S. company. It's another thing to short a local municipality, and that's the real trouble if they think, for example, California can't pay their bills. That's amazing, right? And not in the short term, but in the long term. But if they're shorting the entire United States treasury, I think we have no idea what kind of trouble we're in. The vultures are up in the air, and we don't know it. I don't like the place I'm in, headspace within the hardwood and the ceiling. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. And I feel fine, but I know the same is not applied to you. Tonight, a journalist and an author, his new book is called The End of the Free Market, Who Wins the War Between States and Corporations. Please welcome back to the program, Ian Bremmer. <laughs> Good to see you, John. Good to see you again. The end of the free market. I'll tell you, you're a, a hell of a writer. This is a, a, a very complex, difficult subject uh, tackled beautifully. I actually felt like I understood uh, somewhat uh, the new threats. Y your feeling is the, the, the big threat to our economy may not even be uh, Wall Street and these types of regulations and things, even though they need it's state capitalism it is. or statist capitalism. What, what's that? Yeah, we're focusing a lot right now on Goldman. We're focusing on the big short. It feels good. Mm -hmm. um, it feels very, very good. I understand. But <laughs> the last 18 months, the world has changed faster than at any point since the end of World War II. Right. Um, we used to be in a situation where it was the G7 world, and you had states that supported free markets, sometimes more regulated, sometimes less. But now we're looking at an environment where the world's second largest economy and the fastest growing out of the recession is one where the state controls the economy. It's the largest player. There's no rule of law. You're and talking China. I'm talking China. And so as a consequence, you don't have a free market anymore. You have some free market states that aren't doing so well, and you have some state capitalist states. And by the way, you go to Chinatown, you ask the average Chinese what they think about their government, they have a lot better view of it than the average American does of the American government, Brits do of the British government, Lord knows Greeks and the Japanese. It's crazy, China, the one country that truly loves tea, no tea party. No really, tea party. you know? <laughs> they love their government. Here, you know, it's, it, it, it strikes me as what these authoritarian, uh, authoritarian governments have done, China and Russia, is they've harnessed sort of the power of capitalism to quell almost revolt. It's like a hedge against revolt. They're, they're using our system to their advantage, but not using the downside of our system, the volatility. that They don't face that, it seems. I, I didn't see a global financial crisis. Right. I saw a financial crisis in the West. Chinese didn't have a financial crisis. They didn't have the banks. 
They controlled their banks. They didn't have those sorts of exposure. They had a recession. But you're not suggesting we move to a more authoritarian uh, uh, economy where, where the state has more control of it. You believe that we have to make the free market more appealing. Oh, I think we do. Uh, I think there's no question. But I think we also need to recognize that the world economy is not what it was. And our multinational corporations are trying to get into these statist economies. And a lot of them are going to get Googled out. Right. If you get to a situation where you have a war... Can Google do that now? <laughs> can they Google you out? Oh. Is there a button on Google where you can get Googled out? No, it's a, this is a passive verb. They got right. Googled. They I don't want to get Googled out. I don't blame you. People the, stop searching for you. The difficulty is, is, it seems like volatility. The problem seems to be, and, and, and maybe it's, I'm confusing the derivative market with something else, but we have this unregulated derivative market that is larger monetarily than the combination of all the money in the world. That doesn't seem like it can be real. Isn't it, isn't it like $700 trillion in this derivative market? When you're taking bets with no underlying assets, right. you're, you're creating a casino. That's not a regulated free market. That's an unregulated free market. You know, the reason I named the book this, I had this meeting about a year ago with the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs of China, uh, He Yefei. Turned out to be the guy that Obama was forced to meet with when Wen Jiabao didn't show up at Copenhagen. Had no, kind of interesting. He, but for, you liked this guy. You, you thought he was very warm and very engaging. You, you enjoyed... Oh, he's a very smart guy, right. very impressive guy. But the first thing he asked me is he said, so Ian, now that the free market has failed, what do you think the role of the state in the economy should be? And the free market hasn't failed. What we've seen in the last 10 years is not the failure of free market. And what Obama's doing right now is not socialism. There was no referee. There were no regulators paying attention to what was actually happening in Wall Street. That's not a free market system. And as a consequence of that, we're having a hard time right now defending our free market principles. Obama is not going out there and saying, I support the free market. He's saying, I don't, I don't want to run GM. That's too hard. I've got too many other things to do. It's not politically defensible today right. to go out and support free markets, despite the fact that that's what made this country great. Well, then are we having the wrong conversation in the country? Because the conversation appears to be, on one side, we're becoming a socialist country, which I think has defined uh, uh, the definition of socialism down to an extent that I don't even think it's recognizable as socialism if that's what we're doing in this country. It feels like we're still doing the same regulated free market thing with a couple of weird tweaks due to a, a catastrophe. Yeah. But the conversation appears to be between that and more reform in other areas that don't seem to be taking hold. So what conversation should we be having on the economic front? I think we have to recognize that the way America succeeds is for us to be perceived as indispensable. We want people to want to invest here. We need our companies to be indispensable. We need our economy to be perceived as too big to fail. Not just Citigroup, not just B of A, but the United States of America. And the problem we're facing Perceived right now, as or as? I think we are. We are the world's largest economy. We right. have the best educational institutions. We have uh, the only uh, blue water navy that can actually defend, um, you know, sort of uh, sea lanes and the rest. We spend more money on R&D. But at the same time, we have the Chinese saying the United States dollar should not be the reserve currency. It's not safe. Everyone wants to buy gold and it's going through but the But that's room. disingenuous. Don't you think China's being disingenuous when they say that? I mean, otherwise, wouldn't they be dumping? They're the largest holder of that in, in the universe. I think that they're only being somewhat disingenuous when you see them trying as fast as they can to diversify their exports away from the West because they know the U.S. can't buy the crap they used to, right? And neither can the Europeans, neither can the Japanese. And they're trying to build out their own domestic 
consumption as fast as they can. Well, they're trying to create a middle class that'll buy the crap that we used to buy that we don't want to buy anymore because we're going to be getting it from, you know, maybe hopefully another oh, impoverished Some other impoverished country. <laughs> Let's go back to mercantilism. Long time ago. <laughs> do, you, is, is, do you believe that, that this is the conversation that will begin to be had, that people, responsible people in the government and, and on television will start to have the real conversation about uh, promoting the kind of regulated free market capitalism that we need to make these kind of changes. You know, they're starting to do it in Europe right now because it's gotten to the crisis point. Right. In the United, States, the United States, we don't feel that level of crisis. We've just spent almost a year dealing with health care. I think it's an improvement, but did we really have the luxury of spending that year with this government on health care? We did not. That was the wrong priority. And now we're in the middle of an election. And so it's let's pile on Goldman Sachs. Again, great TV. Yes. But... But that's not the com. We need to look ahead. We do need to look ahead. But again, in all fairness, yeah. Great TV. Great TV. <laughs> it re you really have to get. It's just. It's. It's so well done and so uh, understandable and, and well laid out. I really thank you uh, for putting it out there. The end of the free market. It's on the bookshelves May seventeenth. Ian Bremmer. During the height of the fight over health reform, every once in a while, an insurance company would get caught sending out uh, lobbying materials, essentially, to its own customers, lobbying its own customers with anti-health reform mailers, like the super scary, totally misleading letter that Humana sent to seniors last fall, warning them that health reform was really a secret plot to cut their Medicare benefits. You might also recall last summer when oil companies started busing their employees to rallies protesting against climate change legislation. So it would look like there was a big groundswell of grassroots opposition to the climate change bill. If an industry, apparently any industry, is about to be regulated in this country, you can pretty much count on that industry deploying a massive professional fake grassroots PR campaign to oppose that regulation at all costs. We saw it with health reform, we have seen it with climate change, and now, now that financial reform is getting serious consideration in Congress, we are seeing it again. But there is a more shameless and insidious element to the industry-designed AstroTurf campaign that's underway right now to oppose financial reform. This stealth corporate lobbying tactic was devised and carried out by the payday lending industry. We've talked about the cartoon villainy of the payday lending industry on this show in the past. While the term payday lender sounds innocuous enough, what payday lenders actually do is more commonly known as loan sharking. They offer, mostly to low-income customers, what look like short-term loans. But they are designed to roll over and over every couple of weeks, collecting giant new fees each time until their customers are buried in debt and ultimately have to pay the equivalent of up to 400% annual interest. Payday lenders are allowed to do that, to engage essentially in usury, because they're not at all regulated by the federal government. Some states regulate them, but some states don't. 
It looks like Congress might be about to change that through a new consumer agency that's part of the financial reform bill that's being debated right now. So cue the depraved payday lending opposition effort. David Lazarus at the LA Times is reporting today on efforts, apparently successful efforts, by the payday lending industry to pressure not their employees, but their customers, the people borrowing money from them at 400% interest into opposing financial reform. This astroturfing effort was exposed when both of California's senators, Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein, say they started getting suspiciously similar sounding calls from payday lending borrowers demanding that Congress leave the payday lending industry alone. No regulations for the loan sharks. I mean, payday lenders. Senator Boxer told the LA Times the calls were coming from just a few phone numbers and it sounded like the callers were reading from the same script. But Senator Boxer said what was most surprising was that the callers were opposing a bill that was designed specifically to protect them. Why would the very people being trapped or tricked into paying 400% interest be against regulations that would give them better interest rates? Well, a woman named Norma Cannell spoke to the LA Times. She said when she visited her local loan shark, I mean payday lender, uh, to make a payment on her 180% interest loan, she was encouraged by an employee to make this call to fight financial reform. She was given a flyer that listed contact information for Senators Boxer and Feinstein. The flyer read in part, quote, if we don't act today, Congress will create a new agency and a government takeover of your personal finances. This new agency would have the power to regulate and restrict your personal credit options. Tell the senators to stop the Community Financial Protection Agency, which isn't what it's called, but still. Tell them you're angry about health care and now Congress wants to control your right to get credit. Tell them you've had enough and that the senator should stand firm against the administration's attempt to interfere in your financial decisions. Cue the twirling of the evil villainous mustache. Norma Cannell was not one of the loan shark customers who followed those instructions. She did not call her senators and demand that they vote against financial reform that would benefit her. But she did offer some insight into why so many others did, telling the LA Times that she was worried that the payday lender holding her 180% interest loan would retaliate against her if she didn't make the calls. She said, quote, what if they call in the loan? And with that, the payday lending industry has bested its own record for amoral sleaziness. The founding principle of this industry, don't forget, is that it's okay to exploit people who are financially desperate. Their business model is something that, frankly, should be illegal. And now that it's in danger of actually being illegal, they are trying to create a fake grassroots defense of that business model in the most despicable way possible. Not by just busing their own employees to rallies or organizing tea parties or making grassrootsy looking websites, but by intimidating their victims, I mean borrowers, the people they've already tricked or trapped into high interest debt cycles, into fighting for more high interest debt cycles. The payday lending industry exists because the people behind it essentially figured out how to legally steal your wallet. And now they're trying to make you help them legally steal your wallet and others too. Nothing at all. We get together, oh, we get together. But separate's always better when there's feelings involved. 
If what they say that nothing is forever what makes, the what makes, the what makes love the exceptions? Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, Are we so in denial when we know we're not happy here? My guest tonight has an English accent. Well, laddie friggin' da. Please welcome Simon Johnson. For coming back. Haven't Thanks seen you in about a year. Good to That's see right. you again. Nice to see you. Now, sir, you you were back here with a head full of steam and a book full of words called 13 Bankers, The Wall Street Takeover and the Next Financial Meltdown. What do you mean, uh, next financial meltdown? All is fixed. <laughs> we ki we kissed the economy's boo-boo and all better now. <laughs> right? Dow's at uh, almost 11,000. That's good. That's good news, Stephen. But unfortunately, these guys are going to clear up. We have not put on a happy face. <laughs> Twenty-three skidoo. You're the cat's pajamas. Remember, Everything's better. It looked pretty good before the last crisis too. It sure Stephen. did. I made some green. Uh, and then presumably you lost money like the rest of us. No, these I got a tip off from a friend of mine. These crises, these crises come about every five years. That's what Hank Paulson says, former Secretary of the Treasury. That's what Jamie Dimon says. He's the head of J.P. Morgan Chase. They're the people who drive the every economy. Every five years, the, the four to five goes years. down. That's right. That's what they say. Well, that's because the Dow is like America's erection. If it lasts more than four years, seek a doctor. <laughs> now, so when is the next financial meltdown, and who will it hurt, and how can I make some cash off of it? Well, it's, it's coming soon for sure. Wall Street has become incredibly powerful. It's taken over Washington. It's been running Washington for about 20 years. It has not done a good job of it. It got a huge bailout out of the last crisis. It's done a great job of running Washington, because when it got into trouble, Washington bailed it out. Great Why job. else would you run Washington? <laughs> it's a great job for Washington. A lousy job for me and, and for everybody else. Maybe a good job for you, Steve. I don't but know, I think... a good job for you. You got a book out of it. <laughs> you seem pretty ungrateful. <laughs> the, the, the book is to warn people people, Stephen, the book is to say we need to address this problem. The two big-to-fail banks need to be made smaller, otherwise they're going to cause another massive Why? Why? Crisis. Why? They didn't fail. Uh, they were safe from failing at the last exactly, minute. Exactly, because they were too big. If they had been smaller, they would have failed. That would have been good. Failure is good? Yes, that's the essence of a market you economy, teach, Stephen. You, 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 you teach this to students? The students know you this. You teach at MIT. You teach at MIT. The students uh, know this already. Entrepreneurship, that's what you teach. That's right. Okay. And, and economics and, and some finance. Okay. Well, so how is failing good? I always thought that failing was bad. Any market economy needs people to fail. If you have people who have get out of free, free jail, uh, get a jail free cards, they're going to go off and, and, and make, uh, do crazy things. And when, tr when the time comes for a reckoning, there, there's, no, there's no reckoning, there's no bankruptcy. They get to go out and take the same sort of reckless risks again in financial markets. You say that um, the Obama administration didn't do enough. What, what more could they have done? They practically took over our financial system. No, they made banks take this money. The banks didn't need it. <laughs> no, that, the that, banks did not need the money. They said, no thanks, you're going to make us look bad. And they said, you have to take this money. That was the Bush administration. The Obama administration in March I, 2009. It doesn't matter. It's now Obama's president. It's all his problems. Exactly right. And in March, in March 2009, they had 13 bankers come to the White House, and they said, you're all saved. You get to keep your jobs. You keep your board of directors. You keep your pension. Uh, you keep your entire empire. In fact, go out and do it again. You're exact same belief system is in place right now on Wall Street, Stephen. These people will go out and make the same kind of massive mistakes again, and we're all going to pay for it. Maybe. Well, that, that's a kind of a pessimistic way of thinking. Maybe this time they will act in, in the interest of the general public. 
You see, I, I prefer to see the glasses half full. <laughs> and, and you see it as, as um, full, full of poison. Ted, Ted, Teddy Roosevelt fa faced exactly the same kind of problem over a hundred years ago. He faced J.P. Morgan, he faced uh, John D. Rockefeller, these people who built huge monopolies. And Teddy Roosevelt said, big is not necessarily beautiful in, in America, because if you get too big, you become too powerful, you take over the political system, and you distort everything to your purposes. That's not consistent with our democracy. Teddy Roosevelt started antitrust. He broke up the big, those overly big players. We need to do the same thing again to our That was the beginning system. of the progressive movement in the United States, and that led to communism. <laughs> didn't lead to communism. It, yes, led, to, it, it led to success. It, it, led, to a, it led to 100 okay, years of prosperity. Okay, let me ask you something. Is Obama a communist or a capitalist? He's a, he's a capitalist. He's undoubtedly he's a, capitalist. a capitalist. He's a capitalist. Yes. He's, 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 he's taken over car companies. He's taken control of banks. He has taken, uh, he's taken over health care. Does that sound like a capitalist? He did not take control of the banks, Stephen. You keep saying point. that, but eventually I'm going to say it last. <laughs> They, the government did not take over the banks. They said, here's your bank back. Keep your board of directors. Not a single CEO, not a single one of the 13 bankers lost their jobs, Stephen. Didn't lose a pension, didn't lose their bonuses, nothing. If, they were not taken over by the government. No, and, and because they did nothing wrong. Because if they did something wrong, they would be in jail. No, they would have. No, they would be in jail. Do you believe it? Well, people, do you believe in our criminal justice system? That I'm do you afraid, believe in our criminal justice system? I sir? wish that I wish that I could believe in. I wish that I could believe that these people would be held accountable in both in criminal court and civil court for what they've done. But unfortunately, as we're seeing now in the case of Lehman Brothers and what they did and what how they misrepresented what they were doing before they failed, the legal system has not yet uh, succeeded in bringing them to, to justice. You think that one of the problems of these banks end up being uh, monopolies? They are far too powerful. They are a type of monopoly, absolutely. What's yes. wrong with a uh, monopoly? A monopoly I is... I mean, it's fun. <laughs> it's fun to play, and yes, some people end up driving around in an old shoe, but, but, but still, somebody wins. Isn't that what finance is about, winning? Well, some one person wins, and everybody else in the economy does very, very badly. Um, that's, that's not good. That's, 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 the... that's the free market. No, the free market is everybody has a chance to fail, including the guy who's built up this, this in huge, huge monopoly position. If you fail in monopoly, if you fail in monopoly, you, you go out of business, you go bankrupt. No, you're no, you knock over the board and yell at your sister. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly right. That's what these guys are good at. They have exactly the same approach, to, but except they have the approach to the U.S. economy. Knock over the U.S. economy and, 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 and yell at Stephen Colbert. Oh, they wouldn't dare. <laughs> Simon Johnson, thank, thank you. you so much. The book is 13 Bankers. I believe that's called a banker's dozen. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Folks, we have a real problem in this country. These last few years of a poor economy combined with high government spending have turned what was once a surplus financially into an enormous federal deficit. Now, what with this being tax season and all, I had an idea on how to fix the problem. Turns out I was wrong. The IRS is announcing a new plan specifically designed to target the rich. Critics are now asking, are those the same rich who create the jobs in this country? Wait, critics ask that or you? Are you asking? <laughs>
sounds like you're asking. Actually, I don't think it's the job-creating rich. I think it was the rich that pulled the fraudulent financial schemes that ended up destroying a lot of the jobs. But it doesn't really matter. It's a tenet of conservative trickle-down economics that you don't tax the upper income levels. You wait for the money that they make to become so heavy that their pants fall off. <laughs> Scattering doubloons into the sewers where you and your rat-hunting family can gather them to reintroduce them into the economy. I think. So the rich are untouchable. You can't raise taxes on the middle-class workers because the middle-class workers, they're the tough guys. Doesn't take much strength to pull the trigger. The working man's the tough guy. Sonny says the working man's a sucker. Shut up, Collagero. The working man's a tough guy. Your father's a tough guy. Try getting up every day driving a bus. <laughs> that was uh, a Bronx tale. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I believe I may have lost everybody on that one. Uh, although, if you did enjoy that, you'll love my new one-man show. John Stewart paraphrases a Bronx tale after seeing it twice 15 years ago. So you can't tax the rich, they're the job creators. You can't tax the middle class, they're the job doers. What group could be gleefully grabbed onto as not paying their fair share that also plays into the new socialist nightmare narrative that's out there, the poor. Tax day is only a week away, but a study from the Tax Policy Center finds nearly half of all U.S. households don't pay a penny to Uncle Sam. 47% of households pay not a single dime in taxes, and some of those households actually make a profit from the Treasury. That's because either their incomes are too low or they qualify for enough credits and deductions to eliminate their liability. Those f***ers. <laughs> Sweeping, arugula washing, Volvo fueling laundromat liberals. And their government leeching scheme to not pay federal income taxes. Of course, they do most likely pay payroll taxes, state, local sales, and excise taxes. But the important thing is, knowing that doesn't make you as mad, does it? So, who are these scofflaws? Generally, they're a bunch of low down, unlovable no accounts. Single mothers making minimum wage. Heads of households making less than 30000 a year. And the worst of the worst, grandmothers on fixed incomes. Hey, Granny, want any gray poupon with your cat food? <laughs> Don't make me have Brian Kilmeade come over there and put his bowls in your face. Well, don't worry. Glenn Beck has a plan for these scraping byloaders. How about if you pay nothing, you're the one that has to serve in the military. Let's see how you like the grub in Fallujah, Nana. Yeah. That's right. You heard the people. From now on, wars will no longer be fought disproportionately by the very rich. Stand down, Private Biff. By the way, uh, why did all the cable news networks have to cover this new socialism outrage on April 8th? Well, it's because on April 7th, it was written in red on the Drudge Report. Uh, he picked it up from an AP report. And the study itself came out uh, last June. <laughs> but see, that was unfortunately smack in the middle of the government health care takeover tyranny season. So that story went into the outrage bank.
By the way, it's not just the elderly and the poor that are screwing Uncle Sam. It's interesting, you know, Exxon earned $35 billion last year. U.S. government doesn't see a cent of that. Exxon, however, paid most of its taxes to foreign governments, not a penny in America. $35 billion in profit? Zero dollars in federal income tax because of offshore subsidiaries? Well, and I want to be fair, they are the job creators, although most of those jobs are scrubbing otters. But still. <laughs> By the way, um, that, that report, I think, that report uh, on Exxon was from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. But if the media down here were outraged about poor people not paying enough federal income tax, they're going to be all over this Exxon story. Cue montage of every American news outlet running the story. Welcome to the Fox 9 Buzz. I'm Alex Kendall. ExxonMobil made more money than any corporation last year, and it will pay $15 billion in taxes. It didn't pay any of that tax money to America. And next week, we were just talking about this spa week. <laughs> That's it? Just KMSP in Minneapolis, St. Paul? And I'm Jason Matheson. Well, well, don't worry. The big dogs did also mention Exxon. And that helping out a lot of stocks like Exxon. Look at Exxon. These are names to get excited about. Big oil stocks like Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, they are rocking. Yeah, and if they're rocking, the IRS shouldn't come a-knocking. Because <laughs> you ain't get Think of us talking points and false choice after false choice And there's no prominent voices on the left Five companies own everything you read, hear and see Misleading the people, still calling it freedom of the press Disaster of epic proportions, they got us all in Traitors in our midst, screwed over when corporations bought in To Congress, representatives of representing mostly lobbyists While the typical oblivious American is fine with all this Given the daily dose of celebrity gossip, government held hard we kicked the worst out of office, but at the core it remains rotten regardless. Now how much can you rob the system before it can be classified as white call a crime? This is class warfare. This is class warfare. This is class warfare. How much can you rob the system before it can be classified as white call a crime? This is class warfare. This is class warfare. At the end of last week, we had financial reform, uh, and of course, as usual, uh, the Obama team get it let out a little, you know, and mission accomplished, the whole thing. I started saying that about health care reform, now everybody's writing about it in terms of financial reform as well, and saw a story out there saying, hey, you know what, Obama's going to go campaign, saying that he did this wonderful financial reform and everything's fixed now. That's a disastrous idea because nothing is fixed. Now let me give you the specifics. Why do I have significant trouble with this bill? Point number one, uh, here is the New York Times writing an article about how uh, Wall Street's reacting to it. One veteran investment banker said, quote, if you talk to anyone privately, there's a sigh of relief. In other words, the bill didn't do nothing, okay? They thought, whew. Maybe I thought we thought they might do it actually, son. No, they didn't do a damn thing. They, he says, at most, it will cut into their profits 15 to 20 percent, but there's no breakup of any institution or any onerous new taxes. Another uh, investment banker says, nah, at most, it'll cut into profits by about 4 percent, but we'll get to keep doing business exactly as it is. Now, look, I don't want to cut in their profits. It's not about, oh, they're making too much profit. It's about, did you fix the system? 
And here, they're saying, oh, thank God they didn't actually fix the system. So, you know, that might cost me a little bit here and there, but I'm going to keep doing the same highway robbery I was before. A uh, guy who used to work in the uh, Clinton Treasury Department, Roger Altman, who's now at chairman of Evercore Partners, says the health care bill, get a load of this quote, the health care bill is going to transform the structure of health care exponentially more than this legislation on financial regulation is going to change Wall Street. It's not even close, he says. So if you thought health care reform was weak sauce, wait till you get a load of how weak financial reform is. They're laughing at us. Wall Street's laughing. Ha, this is what you got. Obama, change. Ha, pocket change. Easy pushover. Let me give you specifics on what's wrong with the bill. Here's quoting the New York Times. The Senate rejected rules that would have broken up huge banks considered too big to fail or imposed limits on their size. Caps on how much banks can charge credit card holders to borrow also fell by the wayside. And the long-established wall between trading and commercial banking, which was torn down in 1999, will not be going back up. Okay, 0 for 4. Nicely done. Another reason for relief, several bankers said, is that neither the Senate version of the bill nor the one passed by the House in December includes the more populous provisions that have gained foothold in Europe, like a tax on financial transactions or individual bonuses. So we leave the structure exactly as it is. We didn't break up too big to fail, etc., as I explained to you. And we didn't even say, hey, you know what? Financial transaction tax or bonus tax that Europe is doing that is eminently reasonable because they're making all that money, their salaries, their bonuses, the profits of the banks because of the easy credit we're giving them and the backdoor bailouts we're giving them, let alone the actual flat-out money we gave them. They're taking our money and running with it, and we're not doing a damn thing with it, about it. <laughs> and then the New York Times said, as I have said over and over, the one thing that's, um, there were two things that are good in the bill. One is on the ratings agencies, the Senator Franken passed that amendment, that's solid. The second is, hey, link his amendment on derivatives, right? <laughs> Don't get too excited about that, because derivatives are very, very important, and they would have to split them from the banks, except they still have to do the Senate and the House version, and uh, the New York Times says, uh, in that conference committee, that provision is, quote, likely to be shelved or watered down. <laughs> you think they're going to actually do a tough provision? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, another banker said, uh, this legislation is not going to kill business. Um, even if their profit margins are reduced, uh, the derivatives business will compare favorably to more traditional banking activities like commercial lending. You understand the downside of that? He said, look, we're not going to lend any more money, and new numbers are in on that. They're, they stopped lending completely. They're like, no, we're going to do the profitable stuff, which is the derivatives trading. So we're going to suck up all that taxpayer money and easy credit, and we're not going to lend it out to small businesses or large businesses. We're going to use it to gamble more because you didn't stop us. Change you can believe in. <laughs> all right, worse details. It is riddled with loopholes. Here come the loopholes. Uh, this is now quoting the Associated Press. Uh, the bill exempts companies that use derivatives to reduce the risk of fluctuations in interest rates and commodity prices. So they say, oh, you know, we need the exemptions for just those specific areas. But as they explain, experts say this exception could be exploited. Hmm, really, you think the companies might exploit those exceptions? Companies could, for example, find ways to combine traditional business activities with purely financial investment through the use of derivatives. Giant loophole number one. Now, on top of the fact that they didn't even actually fix anything, there's still these giant loopholes in there. Now, loophole number two, smaller banks could still choose their own regulator. These banks would likely seek out the most lenient oversight. Boy, we did sweeping financial reform. 
the smaller banks can choose their own regulator. Oh, I'd like to have Bob. Bob seems a nice guy. I think he's going to take it easy on me. Ooh, wow, we got really tough on him. Key advocates for that loophole were the Independent Community Bankers of America and the American Bankers Association. Big surprise. Um, how about loophole number three? The Senate voted against capping how much banks can bet relative to their reserves. It left that up to same regulators who failed to properly monitor banks' risk-taking before the crisis. So there is no cap on how much they can bet relative to the money that they have. So what the hell did we do in this reform? Okay, loophole number four. The Senate bill lets regulators decide whether to protect the creditors of the failed banks. The bill does little to prevent the big banks from getting bigger, meaning taxpayers might have to intervene again. A Democratic amendment to limit the size of the banks was rejected amid opposition from the banks such as Goldman Sachs. So no limit on the size. And uh, we're, we're told, hey, trust the regulators. If it turns out there's a problem, they'll break up the big banks, even though that's exactly what they didn't do last time. And there's no reason to believe they'll do it this time. Loophole number five. The Consumer Watchdog's authority would be confined to the firms with at least $10 billion in assets. Thousands of community banks wouldn't be super supervised by the consumer agency at all, nor would many non-banks where a lot of this uh, fishy transactions happen. The Chamber of Commerce has led the push to limit the reach of the consumer agency. The payday lending industry and the National Automobile Dealers Association have joined the effort. Enjoy that gigantic loophole where the pay lenders can still charge you up to 600% interest. That was called loan sharking in the past. Did that get addressed in the bill? Nope. This bill is a J-O-K-E. Joke. All right, uh, last loopholes for you guys. Uh, now, Cantwell had an amendment to say, hey, you know what? Uh, we're saying that we're going to put all the derivatives on a market so at least there's transparency. That's supposed to be one of the golden things about this bill. Aha! Reform! But she read the fine print and it said, if you don't do it, uh, well, there's absolutely no penalty. So she wanted to introduce an amendment saying, well, if you break the, that law, there should be a penalty. Nope. Got spiked. They killed it. So even if you don't put it on the market, there will be no penalty. And guess who gets to decide whether they put that on the uh, markets uh, entirely and who the clearing houses are going to be? I'm sure you're going to be shocked to find out that, yes, the banks will run their own clearing houses that get to decide what goes on the open market and what doesn't. And then there's a final little one that says that um, banks uh, the banking committee dropped the term trading facility, which... Uh, then led to another loophole letting them exempt even more derivatives trading from open uh, view. In the end, you're going to have almost no open view on the derivatives trading. And even if you did and they didn't put it on there, there's no penalty. This bill is horrible. Horrible. That's why Wall Street is celebrating today. Saying, oh, and the, most of the major banks uh, on Friday, they went up 5% their stock market value. They're like, this is what Obama had to offer? Wow. This is a change Wall Street can believe in. Look, it, it, they're, it, they're, what, they're, what's going to happen here, I've made this prediction before, I'll do it again here if you like. This is going to lead to a worldwide economic collapse. We have done nothing to fix it. And they think that they're being cute. They're playing politics. Oh, we'll say we fixed it. 
and the media will cover it, and every story. Now, look, the AP story is great. The New York Times story is great. But even, and the Newsweek story, Michael Hirsch, great. They're the ones that explain the loopholes. But even some of them lead with, and every other story leads with, sweeping financial reform, as if the job got done. There's nothing sweeping about this. So in the end, they will take too many risks. They will bet too much money without enough capital to make more profit in the short term, and they will crash. And when those banks crash, they're going to take everyone down with them, including possibly the United States government, because we already don't, we don't have enough money. We already put an extra trillion dollars in the Fed. We've already put in uh, close to $200 billion in the AIG and Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. We don't have money anymore well, for when the next crash happens. There is no more bailouts because we ran out of money. The problem is when there's no more bailouts and the next crash happens, it's an absolute financial debacle. And I, th I think it's going to affect the whole world. And then they'll look back and go, oh, yeah, it turns out that that financial reform didn't get the job done. And they'll say no one could have seen it coming except for all the people here that see it coming. Thanks for listening, everyone. I have, uh, as promised, some big news. This is, I mean, it's not hot off the presses. It's like if there was a machine that made schedules. That's the machine that this news would be hot off of. Uh, you most likely recall that I've been promoting a protest that's going to be happening in Washington, D.C. during the America's Future Now conference coming up this coming week. Well, we have some exciting news and some uh, just different news. The exciting news is that the protest is now being officially endorsed by the conference itself. It'll be promoted that way, uh, you know, through the conference. And so our hopes of having a successful protest have gone up even further, considering that more people will hear about it. There will be even more people showing up, more fun being had, and so forth. The trade-off for that endorsement was to move the protest from its original date, which I won't mention now to avoid confusing anybody, to immediately after the conference. So as soon as the conference is over, everyone packs up, heads over to the Treasury Department and protest. So the new time is Wednesday, June 9th at 1.30 in the afternoon. Wednesday, June 9th, 1.30 in the afternoon. So the conference in DC is uh, taking place June 7th, 8th and 9th, and as soon as it's over, everyone heads over to the protest. If you're going to be in D.C. at that time, or you can just make the trip down for that day, obviously that's where you need to be on Wednesday, June 9th at 1.30 p.m. Second piece of big news uh, coming off the scheduled making machine, I finally was able to nail down an official time for listener meetup. Washington, D.C. listener meetup is happening the day before the protest. It's going to be the evening before. It'll be like a... a listener meetup, social, fun time, slash pre-protest planning meeting uh, brainstorming session. So at 8 p.m. on June 8th, you can come down, meet up with myself, the Young Turks crew, and uh, listeners of, of course, both this show and theirs and anyone else we find who uh, might be interested. And we will be at the Open City Bar 
in Washington, D.C. You can look up details about that place at OpenCityDC.com, and it's next to the zoo, effectively. It's, it's near the, uh, the Adams Morgan metro stop on the red line. So there you go. That's the news. Uh, alert your friends and neighbors. Hope to see you down there if uh, you are at all capable of making it to either the Wednesday protest or the Tuesday evening gathering at Open City. So now I just want to thank a couple of members. Elaine M. signed up for a full year membership starting back on November 22nd. Thank you, Elaine. And uh, Ronnie G. signed up for a monthly membership starting back on January 2nd and has stuck with the show ever since. Huge thanks to both of those members and all of the members who make the show possible, obviously in the most fundamental way. Members and donors to the show are who keep me able to produce 10 shows a month and enjoy the benefits besides the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing they're keeping the show going, but also the members-only raw feeds, the bonus content, all that great stuff. And of course, the one thing that every single one of you can do, please continue to spread the word about the show, help to grow the audience, set a goal, and just tell five friends about it. it makes a huge difference. So that's going to be it for today. Stay connected to the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter. Of course, details if there are any uh, last minute changes, which I do not foresee. Uh, anything that needs to be updated up to the minute about uh, the gatherings, protests, anything like that, all will be posted to uh, both Facebook and Twitter. So get plugged in there. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and all the music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month now, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. The black and white. Bought a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond friend I want to friend Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change? More podcasts. Ten a month. And there's the iPod apps, the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers. And now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year Award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on just about every Thing. At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, food, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on. Not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon. And you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a big difference in our world, keeping the Best of the Left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced, heard, and passed on. I'm proud to be a part of that, and you will be too. Do your part. Do what you can. Thanks.